You have a more engaged senior, you have a more educated senior, and you have a happier consumer, right? And, and those are the more subjective aspects that underlie those great uh, financial statistics. Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of KeyBank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, delivering kinder, smarter, affordable care for all. I also co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. This month, our article is titled Public Health and Healthcare in Post-COVID America, Innovative Solutions for a Healthier, More Prosperous Society. In the article, we explore the outsized impact of social determinants on individual and community health. We also profile companies developing innovative solutions that address health disparities. COVID-19 has magnified the impact and visibility of social determinants on vulnerable populations. A potential silver lining of the COVID crisis is that it gives American society the opportunity to become more proactive in promoting holistic health and wellness. Today, I'll be talking with my two co-authors, Court Houseworth and Kyle Stern. Court is a managing director at Kane Brothers and is co-leader of the firm's managed care advisory practice. Kyle is a managing partner at Healthscape Advisors. Prior to co-founding Healthscape, Kyle worked at United Health Group, where he was on the Optum Health executive leadership team. Kyle and his team at Healthscape have joined us this month to do a deep dive on the social determinants of health. Chicago-based Healthscape is part of Convey Health Solutions, a healthcare technology and services company. Welcome to House Calls, gentlemen, where the bankers, and in this case, advisors, are always in. Thanks, Dave. Really appreciate uh, you hosting us today and, and diving into uh, such an important uh, topic in healthcare. Great to be here, Dave. Yeah. Well, let's let's get right to it. Uh, Court, uh, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the genesis of this commentary and why in particular you wanted to dive into the topic of social determinants of health with Kyle and his team? Dave, as I think about it, increasingly it's recognized that addressing non-clinical factors uh, contribute significantly to improved health outcomes. Uh, social determinants of health have a significant impact on care outcomes and population health. As Kane Brothers works with payers, providers, and other healthcare service organizations, we are seeing a substantial increase in the resources dedicated to addressing such social determinants. Uh, furthermore, like many, we are seeing structural changes in reimbursement from fee-for-service to value that address health needs in a coordinated and cost-effective fashion. Uh, both Kane Brothers and Healthscape deliver market-leading insights and solutions to our respective clients, which are both primarily payer and provider organizations and healthcare technology companies. We believe collaboration is a powerful tool to serve our clients. As Kyle will share, the Healthscape team provides consulting services to leading healthcare entities, uh, many of whom overlap with Kane Brothers clients. 
uh, Kyle and I thought combining our views and insights on social determinants of health would be interesting and valuable to all of our clients. Hey, thanks, Court. Uh, that was great. We really haven't paid for health and wellness, prevention, chronic disease management, and, and so on. And now we're getting some models that, that are uh, starting to do that, and, we're, and that in turn is triggering innovation inside the sector. Uh, really interesting. And I know, Kyle, you spend, you and your team spend a lot of time specifically thinking about the business models and the companies and so on. So why don't you give us a little background on Hellscape? Sure, Dave, and uh, thanks again for having us on House Calls. I love talking about the importance of uh, SDOH and some of the advancements uh, that we're seeing out there in the market. Uh, Healthscape Advisors is a management consulting firm. We are solely dedicated to healthcare. Uh, we work with both payers and providers, so we see both ends of the spectrum, and we really help them transform their businesses uh, as they try to navigate our ever-changing healthcare landscape. Let's discuss social determinants and why they're so important for healthcare outcomes and costs. Uh, Kyle, maybe uh, why don't we start with you? Could you provide some background on social determinants, the categories, the impact, and, and just generally how you think about them within the overall health ecosystem? Sure, Dave. Uh, when we talk about long-term personal health, it is really all about social determinants. Collectively, social determinants is the single most important factor set in one's own health. Now, uh, the audience uh, for these house calls I know is a, is a highly knowledgeable one, but let me just take a second to level set. The social determinants can be broadly broken into six different categories. You have number one, economic stability. This is, you know, what's your income level? Uh, what debt do you have? Do you have job security or a job? Um, the second factor is your neighborhood. Um, the housing that you have, the transportation uh, that you may have access to. But it's also things like parks and, and bike paths and, and playgrounds uh, that may or may not be um, easily available. The third factor is your education. Uh, do you have a high school diploma? Do you have uh, college experience? But beyond your grade level, it's also about your health literacy. The fourth category is food. We have many, many individuals in this country, a um, significant portion of our populace that is food insecure, that do not have access to healthy foods and healthy choices in their community. The fifth factor is your, is your social community context. What support system do you have? Are you isolated? Are you connected? And what are the means of connectedness? And then that last category is really that the healthcare system itself. Do you have access to providers? Um, do you have the ability to get there? Are they quality providers? Do you live in a remote area? If you're in an urban setting, does it take you four buses to get to a provider? All of those factors contribute materially uh, to our health. Study after study have shown that these factors collectively account for over 60% of our long-term health outcome. Uh, Outcomes measured by life expectancy, traditional quality of daily life factors, your total health spend, the number of morbidities or HCCs that you have. Um, these are all determined by these factors. Genetics is, is, is a distant second. And 10% or less of your overall health outcome is actually through clinical interventions. That was a really nice job of, of going uh, through that. And we've known for a while um, that social determinants uh, 
have a huge influence on health status and longevity. And we've started to see the concept of of death gap uh, where lower income people are often dying 10, 15, even 20 years earlier than people living uh, in wealthier neighborhoods just a few miles away. So this isn't a, really a surprise, but, but COVID, um, because of how it's targeting its victims, I think has placed uh, or magnified the impact of, of social determinants on health status. Well, unfortunately, the most vulnerable populations and communities have faced disproportionate impact from the disease. Frankly, experts have been uh, surprised by the degree of the disproportionality. In San Francisco, the low-income population has the highest infection rate in the three uh, largest Bay Area counties. In New York City, Black and Latino residents are dying at twice the rate of white residents. In Chicago, the racial disparity is even higher, with Black residents accounting for 72% of the city's COVID-19 deaths, while Black males make up about 29% of the city's population. Uh, COVID-19 has exacerbated uh, certain challenges associated with housing and income instability, food insecurity, and social isolation. For example, with up to 78% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, the sudden loss of jobs have interfered with mortgage and rent payments. Uh, in the early going, uh, there were widespread shortages of basic food staples in grocery stores, and there continues to be an ongoing struggle by food banks to meet the increases in demand. And finally, the shelter-in-place programs have exacerbated uh, the nationwide loneliness epidemic. So we've seen you know, multiple impacts uh, across the country and across the populations. Yeah, it's 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 actually kind of scary the way you're laying it out, Court. COVID is a, is actually making many of the conditions that were already afflicting uh, those in lower income neighborhoods worse. So we could see a compounding effect of the the disease with the social determinants, which gets us to uh, the question of how exactly did we get here? <laughs> You know, it's been over a century since America experienced uh, its last pandemic, um, the great influenza of 1918. In response to that pandemic, the country developed a, a robust public health infrastructure. And in many ways, that dramatically improved overall health status um, throughout the country. Unfortunately, however, investments in public health have have withered during the last 30 to 40 years to the point where there are lots of leaks in our, our public health infrastructure, which is both limiting our ability to respond to the pandemic, but also uh, has limited our ability to address social determinants in an effective way. So Kyle, why don't we start with you? Where, where have we gone wrong? Boy, uh, Dave, that's a great question. I, I, obviously, it, it's multifactorial. But if I were to single out the primary driver, I, I'd frankly say it's misaligned incentives. Uh, we foundationally have a system that pays for acute clinical intervention. Um, it's very difficult in our system to be rewarded or to collect revenue for health, for positive outcomes, for, uh, for no episodes of care. Um, unfortunately, right now, our system, uh, and certainly the one over the last 30 years, has been reactive. And uh, 
what we need to do is we need to be more proactive and particularly proactive around these uh, influential factors um, that frankly are the largest portion of our outcomes by, which are the SDOH factors. Yeah, you know, one way I've always thought about this is um, uh, healthcare is the the ultimate weak link, weak link enterprise. We're only as strong as our weakest link, and uh, we're very strong on the treatment side, but we're very weak on the prevention side. And yet, if we could prevent the need for a surgery um, through chronic disease management, health promotion, any number of things addressing social determinants, uh, that's a better outcome than having the best surgery by the best surgeon in the best institution in the country. Um, and yet we, we pay a lot of money for the latter, which is an inferior outcome than we do the former. I think we're getting some real innovation in the sector. Why don't we just generally talk about the types of organizations addressing social determinants today, and what are the barriers that they're confronting in providing effective services? You know, they want to do it, uh, they're organized to do it, but the system as itself isn't really set up to uh, to accommodate this type of business model. So what are those barriers? Uh, what a great question, Dave. Um, we see a broad array of healthcare industry participants addressing the social determinants. Payers, for example, are increasingly investing in housing communities. CareSource, the focus primarily on the Medicaid population, has funded uh, digital preschools for lower income children. And Kaiser has awarded grants to promote education and job training. Um, we've seen hospitals systems do some pretty innovative things. ProMedica in Ohio um, has addressed food insecurity by building a grocery store for at-risk individuals. Um, from a transportation standpoint, we've seen Lyft and Uber adapt their uh, apps and services uh, for the healthcare community to provide non-emergency transportation. But to the second part of your question, the obstacles, I think there's really two main obstacles which I see. First is the scale of the problem is enormous. And there's just so many competing priorities uh, with limited funding. Um, and then second, tracking the outcomes and benefits from such initiatives is challenging. Uh, there is a uh, early stage company, Unite Us, via uh, its digital platform is addressing the latter problem. Uh, the company handles external referrals between community services and providers, and then tracks each of the patient's outcomes in their journey through care. And so I think that's a big step towards solving um, the, the tracking and outcomes part of the uh, issue. I guess you can't fight a five alarm fire with a garden hose, uh, to use an old, old metaphor. So on the one hand, really encouraging that uh, a number of companies are creating really innovative solutions, uh, building grocery stores, uh, using Uber and Lyft for transportation and, and so on. On the other hand, those are a drop in the bucket relative to where the main uh, where the main action is, uh, as Kyle said, in the in the treatment side of things. Um, but we know down in our bones that addressing social determinants is a major public health issue. So we have to do it. Fortunately, the news isn't all bad. Court, as you alluded to, there's been some real innovation for addressing social determinants of health. Kyle, could you discuss advances in technology and data 
primary and preventative care and social support uh, that are underlying the business models of, of some creative and innovative companies? Sure, Dave. And I, and I really think that Court hit the nail on the head. Uh, I started in healthcare in 1993. As I now look at healthcare companies investing in housing, healthcare companies helping connect people to jobs, healthcare companies supporting educational programs. Um, it's a wonderful thing. I, I, I would not have imagined in 1993 that we would have organizations uh, like CVS and United and, and Blue Cross plans throughout the system, certainly here in Illinois, investing tens of millions of dollars on these factors that one might think are unrelated, but as we've all come to learn, are highly related to the health of the population of individuals they serve. So it's very, very exciting. On the technology front, uh, Court mentioned a couple like Unite Us and Healthify. You know, I've been dealing with care management platforms uh, for 20 years. You know, these care platforms are used by registered nurses and other practitioners to help guide individuals through uh, their complex disease states. And these platforms are very good historically at guiding individuals through the right care steps to treat their illness. But what's been really cool from some of these new companies is that they're integrating with those and a nurse can easily toggle and not just address the clinical pathway for that diabetic, but then immediately connect them to food banks if they're food insecure, and nutritional programs, and literally down to the street level, and then even connect them to a share ride service that will take that individual to um, that nutritional program uh, education site. And so that's a really interesting new dynamic. These tech platforms and data stores that are interacting with, with map-based systems to get people to where they need to be. And that's just an exciting example of what we're seeing on the tech side. Certainly, um, Court also mentioned Uber, right? They are integrated with nearly every EMR across the country, and they're partnering with plans, uh, Guidewell Florida Blue and, and uh, hospital systems down in Florida, where they will receive reimbursement because both the payer and the hospital know and it's in their interest to get that patient to and from care cost-effectively and safely. And this non-emergent uh, medical transportation uh, market that Court mentioned is, is, a, is a huge market. And uh, now you have the ability to track that individual via all of the mechanisms that you know an Uber and a Lyft have. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's interesting to contemplate what uh, what tech is going to do for us. Uh, imagine when uh, 5G is fully online in a couple of years and suddenly a connection point uh, accommodates millions of connections uh, instead of thousands today. But tech is a really important factor in sort of the new wave. Focusing on, on primary care, uh, like you were describing, and giving it its... Uh, it's due in the sense of, you know, prevention and, and health promotion. Um, Chicago-based Oak Street, uh, uh, in Kyle and my uh, hometown here, although they operate across the country, employs all of those types of techniques to service its its clients. Uh, we profile Oak Street in, in our commentary. Uh, court, um, 
why don't you tell us a bit about Oak Street, um, their business model, and what impresses you about them? Uh, I'd be glad to, Dave. Um, Oak Street Health is a private equity-backed company led by CEO Mike uh, Picos. Uh, the company's focused on full-risk primary care contracting uh, to provide care for Medicare patients, including dual eligible and uh, patients with complex conditions. Its clinical model involves the primary care focus, uh, as Kyle talked about, um, and they're really focused on longer, more frequent visits supported by integrated care teams uh, and sophisticated IT tools that are used to develop and carry out individualized care plans. Uh, each of their centers are established in neighborhoods that um, are underserved. Uh, every center operates under one clinical model for how to treat patients in a, uh, a common digital IT platform. All of uh, Oak Street patients have complex care needs and are all Medicare patients. Um, I think, Dave, to your question of what's impressive about them is if you look at the results, 50% uh, reduction in hospital admissions, 52% reduction in emergency department visits, 35% reduction in 30-day uh, readmission rates, and a 90% uh, retention rate with their, uh, their patients. Um, so the model has proven since uh, it was established uh, a handful of years ago uh, to be very effective. Um, one other note to uh, hit upon is that in the wake of COVID-19, Oak Street introduced remote care model, which includes phone and video-based uh, tele telehealth visits, uh, COVID-specific resources, such as uh, virtual monitoring, and a hotline of, um, for wellness checks and deliveries to address uh, social determinants of health. What's not to like about Oak Street? Uh, lower costs, better outcomes, great client engagement uh, with, a, with a tough clientele. Uh, and then the adaptability to shift almost overnight uh, uh, their care delivery mechanisms from in-person to virtual. Really, really, really impressive. Hey, Kyle, any other innovative companies you'd like to mention? You know, uh, th there are so many other companies that are out there um, building great tools and, and creating uh, some breakthrough technologies that are in a very positive way. Uh, deconstructing these social barriers uh, to really good health. And our white paper that will follow this podcast will we'll hit on a number of those companies, really in each of the, uh, the six major categories uh, that we outlined earlier. So I, I won't spend a ton of time diving deep into these companies, but it, it, there's companies like City Block and Aunt Bertha and DC Greens and Community Action and Round Trip and Signify and Rally and Martha's Table and a whole host of others um, that we hit on. And they do great work in food and shelter and transportation, predictive analytics, prevention, connecting people to, uh, to community groups, to prayer groups. Um, and, I, and I think that's wonderful. But I'll say maybe something slightly different. Um, because I think we're, we're building momentum and there are a lot of players out there, but I think there's three important factors that will ultimately underlying, will underlie success. Number one, the companies that I mentioned that are successful at partnerships will do well, complex partnerships. 
the ones that build the right economic model will be successful. And frankly, the ones that scale and create repeatability and sustainability will be successful. As we all know, you can't get anything done by yourself in healthcare. It is such a complex ecosystem. You have to be able to create interconnectivity with providers, with hospital systems, with complex EMRs. You've got to be able to connect with payers and, and their claim data. And if you're able to do that, you'll be successful. Um, if you're, if you frankly have a great widget or a killer app, but you're not able to connect and interface with your partners, you ultimately uh, won't succeed. We've, many, many companies have tried to come in from the retail sector into the healthcare world, and they realize that the fundamental economics are very uh, disjointed and complex. The consumer, the end person who benefits from the tool or capability often isn't the one that pays for things. And so creating the right aligned economic model where you're delivering results, not just to the end consumer, but to another constituent, and that that constituent is, is, is willing and able to fund uh, the mutual success, that's critically important. And then as we all know, in the tech world, scale matters, and, yeah. uh, and without scale, uh, frankly, your, you know, your, your program or your service or your platform uh, will ultimately be subsumed by others. And so uh, scale across geographies and scale within geographies matters a lot. Yeah, a great, uh, great response, uh, Kyle. I mean, how could anybody not want to get healthcare from a company named Aunt Bertha, right? <laughs> but uh, your, your observation that uh, you need partnerships, um, you need a value-based economic model, and the ability to scale, I think those are those are the right factors. Uh, and you also note, as as does uh, President Trump, that healthcare is complicated. So uh, really, do need to do it in partnership with others, with the right tools and the right focus. Um, and we have seen in COVID some massive scaling of virtual care, and also seen the benefits of of people practicing at top of license and so on. Um, we'll get in into this in a moment, but um, before we do that, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the money. Uh, you know, my guiding philosophy in healthcare is that we won't fundamentally change the way we deliver care until we change the way we pay for that care. Um, Court, how does that apply to social determinants of health? That's a great question. And Dave, I agree with your philosophy. It's, it's really critical to align incentives uh, in order to fully address the needs of the patients. Unfortunately, healthcare policymakers struggle uh, with preventative care as well as uh, care, which is uh, addressing the social determinants of health that we've talked about today. Um, however, we are seeing flashes of change. Uh, CMS regulations now allow health plans to offer supplemental benefits that cover meal delivery, rides to the grocery store, or a uh, service that uh, makes members' homes environments more conducive to healthy living. And that's a real uh, step in the right direction. Um, as we've discussed, a patient's social circumstances, including their socioeconomic status, uh, educational attainment, housing status, or food security 
will have a considerable and direct impact on outcomes. After all, if a patient cannot access healthcare resources uh, necessary to manage the illness for themselves, um, the, the clinical effectiveness of any care uh, really will de decrease over time. Um, so incorporating the social determinants of health into value-based purchasing contracts can make the difference between a model that merely incentivizes providers to alter their workflows and one that uh, sustainably lowers costs and improves quality, uh, bringing savings ultimately to uh, all stakeholders. Well, you know, the government is, is focused on this uh, uh, court. Uh, uh, they're on record as trying to get uh, or eliminate fee-for-service payment from Medicare within the next, um, you know, three to five years. And they've been sort of systematically chipping away at that. It is remarkable, though, what what American companies can do uh, with the right incentives. And maybe in that spirit, Kyle, uh, anything you want to add to what the uh, court has described in terms of incentives and business models and desired outcomes? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a naturally optimistic person, and I always try to look at the silver lining in things, even uh, like today's uh, under the most dire uh, situations. And, and I do think a, a positive accelerated outgrowth of the situation we find ourselves in with COVID is an, is an accelerating partnership um, between payers and providers in foundationally structured value-based agreements, right? Um, large IPAs, provider uh, primary care groups, uh, or other larger organized systems care, they're all seeking ways to partner with risk-bearing entities uh, to diversify their revenue uh, sources away from solely fee-for-service and into some of these new uh, value-based constructs. Um, it has been on their agenda for some time. We've all been talking about value-based partnerships for years and years, um, and there have been some um, rudimentary programs launched and, and even some uh, sophisticated programs in certain geographies. But there's no doubt in my mind that uh, as a result of COVID, we are seeing an acceleration of uh, very well-aligned economic models that promote the right behaviors, that incorporate uh, elements of SDOH in them, but that fundamentally uh, compensate uh, actors within this uh, care environment, including providers, for, for promoting health uh, and, and value-oriented exercises versus just journey services. Yeah. Powered by optimism, uh, Kyle, that's a great way to be. And uh, I think you're right. You know, we need payers and we need providers to be on the same page. And um, increasingly, that's where they have to go. The market is starting to shift. The government is starting to shift. COVID will be uh, accelerating that change. So uh, with that in mind, last question. Um, we are right in the midst of this overwhelming uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And many, I think including all of us, believe healthcare will never be the same. Uh, I, I, I'd like to ask each of you to make a bold prediction regarding the post-COVID healthcare landscape. Uh, Court, why don't you go first? What's what's your bold prediction? Well, I'm not sure exactly how bold this is, but I do think that the adoption of telemedicine and virtual care 
uh, that we've seen over the last several months is going to continue to accelerate among all patients, including commercial, Medicaid, Medicare. Um, the pandemic accelerated uh, the adoption of telemedicine, and I expect it to be much more commonplace going forward. Great. Thanks, Court. Kyle? The only other, I guess, bold prediction I'd make is there's going to be a tremendous amount of M&A market activity uh, into the next year, into 2021, as a result of of what's happening. I don't think there will be much activity in, in the months ahead, but in the quarters ahead, there will be. Uh, you will have organizations that look to diversify. Um, if they were employer-only um, a carrier, they'll look to get into Medicaid and Medicare. If they were a provider, they may look uh, to secure parts of the health insurance premium. Uh, they may look to acquire individuals that maybe were more highly leveraged and haven't come out of this situation as strongly uh, as, uh, as other organizations. Oh, great. Virtual care and more consolidation, all moving toward uh, a better, more efficient healthcare delivery system. Uh, that seems like a pretty good place to land. Uh, look for our forthcoming article, Public Health and Healthcare in Post-COVID America. We'll continue to produce thought leadership over these coming months with Kane Brothers. It's more important than ever to look at trends in both the short and long term to get a view of this new world of healthcare and how it's unfolding. Dave, one last item. Court and I would both like to extend our thanks to uh, our first responders, to our nurses, our physicians that put their lives at risk each and every day uh, during this crisis. Oh, what a what a great thought. Um, uh, thank you, Court and Kyle. This has been a fascinating discussion of social determinants of health in the time of COVID-19. To the audience out there, look for our article. All the best.